From InsureTech Ireland, this is InsureTech Radio. I'm Connor Sweetman, and this week's guest is Abdullah Albiate of Medical Chain. Hello, welcome to InsureTech Radio, the podcast that teaches you about how technology is transforming the insurance industry and about the people making that happen. I'm your host, Connor Sweetman, and this week's guest is Abdullah Albiati. I'm Abdullah Albiati. I am a UK uh, GP uh, living up in Leeds and serving my community here and looking after the patients. Um, I also am the co-founder and CEO of a medtech company called Medical Chain. You're very welcome to InsureTech Radio. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. How are you doing? Great, thanks. So you're a busy man. You're a GP and a startup founder. Um, tell me the story of how you got started with Medical Chain. Yeah, so um, Medical Chain has always been, a, I think, a company which represents a lot of gripes that a lot of patients and doctors have. Um, essentially, the focus of the company is to empower patients to have access to the medical records and that premise has always been a problem for, as I say, both patients and doctors. So through my medical training, I've been a uh, surgical trainee. I've been an A&E senior uh, doctor, and I'm now a GP. And when you come across different patients in different environments, uh, it's quite important to know their medical background. Um, Unfortunately, what patients don't realize is we're limited to only certain information that we have on our current computer system that we see them in that setting. So somebody comes to me in an accident and emergency department, I have no idea what's written on their GP system at their local practice. So when a patient is telling me that they're allergic to something and their GP knows what it is, I have no idea what they're allergic to. And essentially, I'm playing Russian roulette with this patient's life, depending on what antibiotics I should give them. And hopefully it's not the one that they're allergic to, and that their GP knows and I don't know. Um, so this is a problem which I came across time and time again, as have other uh, fellow colleagues. And as have patients, unfortunately, you know, hopefully, Connor, you're young, fit and healthy and haven't needed to see the doctor too often. Um, but it can be really frustrating for patients when they come and see us and say, you know, I had an appointment at the hospital last week. They told me I needed so and so scan. And they said, you had to organize it. And I'll, I'll turn the computer screen to the patient and say, look, I've got no such letter from your doctor. It's not been typed up by their secretary yet. So when we receive it, we'll get back to you. It's really unfair on patients having to be that conduit of information, uh, whereas there's much better ways of doing it. Um, but in, in terms of medical records, I can give you an anecdote. So when I was in London as a, as a surgical trainee, um, we were preparing for cases. You know, these, these patients have had 18 months of preparation for a particular surgery, and it's come to the big day. They've taken time off work. Their relatives have brought them into hospital and, and sat anxiously with them. They've already planned a few weeks of rest and time off work. And we can't go ahead with the surgical case because nobody can find the patient's records. And the anaesthetist is not happy to put the patient to sleep until we've actually gone through the the records to double check that we're doing the right procedure for the right patient. And obviously, that's the correct uh, way of doing things. Mm. And what would happen is I would be in the secretary's office in my surgical scrubs going through mountains of papers, you know, file after file after file, trying to find this patient's records with the anaesthetist in my ear saying, so are we going to cancel this case or not? And you can imagine, you know, how devastating that would be for the patient after they've waited this long for surgery, you know, gone through so many different 
emotions and anxiety and preparing themselves for, for very major surgery and the recovery time that's needed. And it's based on me trying to find the information in this stack of papers. You know, when everything is, is digital these days uh, and, and should be easy to, to find, it really can be uh, frustrating both for the clinicians and for the patients when, when you don't have access to the right information at your fingertips. Yeah, and like like when you think about how much um, uh, medicine has progressed in the last generation or two, like, you know, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. But it seems that the you know the administration that supports that is uh, hasn't really kept up. Would that would that be fair to say? Yeah, and, and I think that's actually the the exact correct phrase to talk about healthcare. You know, when they talk about companies such as mine or, or other people uh, operating this space, they talk about it being innovation. And to be honest with you, it's it's not really innovation. We're not really trying to you know invent something brand new. We're asking healthcare systems just to play catch up with the rest of the industries out there that are utilizing technology you know we're so far behind everybody else um that there's so many uh gulfs in in care that occur which could be easily solved with digital solutions i mean coming on to the um wanna cry virus you know this is just because simply our systems are so outdated that they were vulnerable to this virus which affected a quarter of a million uh machines um, i have to be working in a and e at the time and it was complete pandemonium you know you'd have a middle-aged man coming in with chest pain normally needs a blood test that we can get a turnaround result within 40 50 minutes to tell us whether this patient's actually had a heart attack or not but because not all the systems are down we're handwriting all the blood bottles sending them down to the lab which can't you know scan in the barcodes to get everything up digitally on the computer they're having to type everything out doctor's handwriting is not the easiest to read as you can imagine especially on a small blood bottle um, and we were waiting four or five hours for a blood result to tell us whether this patient's had a heart attack or not. Yeah. And you've, you've just got this huge backlog in A&E of patients that we should have treated for a heart attack, but waited hours until we could confirm the diagnosis. And others that were sat there unnecessarily where they've not had a heart attack and they should have just been turned around and sent home. So, no. you, you know, people... Bring... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, yeah, exactly. Like People don't see beyond the headlines. You know, the That's exactly what I was going to ask, caused. yeah. You know, it, it, re- it really was a, a scary time to be practicing. Um, and this is something which comes up time and time again. You know, there was a study by uh, John Hopkins University, which was uh, talking about the third biggest cause of death that they found in their research in America was due to medical errors. And the medical errors, if you look into the literature, literature was put back to not having access to the correct information at the correct time you know is this idea that the data that we're managing at the moment is very fragmented it's not working in the patient's favor and as doctors we sometimes are just operating in the dark with the bits of information that we have and we never have a single version of the truth mm. and uh, so just going back to one because i think you really kind of illustrated that kind of as you say beyond the headline like do you remember like the moment you read about it or were you coming into work and you're like oh god today's gonna be a bad day or like where were where are you when it was kind of coming to life yeah so i think i was quite skeptical of the headlines when i first read it um you knew something was going around because we were receiving lots of information in our, in our nhs uh, inboxes um and then when you realize actually systems were shutting down the hospitals were cancelling operations and cancelling clinics. So anything which was emergency, you know, you, you have to stay open and you have to just go with it. 
but anything which was considered elective and could be postponed was being postponed. Um, so it had a huge knock-on effect and a huge backlog was created. Um, and unfortunately, the, you know, the organization was very slow to act, very slow to take it seriously. And the members of staff that work in a huge organization, such as the NHS, who employs over a million people in the UK, um, didn't help themselves by essentially propagating the virus between them all uh, and, and, and forwarding on emails and clicking on links they shouldn't have clicked on. Uh, so it really was, you know, the perfect storm and, and a, a terrible time in the health service. Yeah, it just a, uh, seems like a frenzy. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was not not a fun time uh, to be there. And of course, there's there's no way you're ever going to prove with data that you know so and so patients suffered, so so and so patients died as a result. Um, but I'm sure there were there were families out there that were affected by this. So tell me about medical chain then. Like um, we kind of covered like uh, a lot of the the context and the background. So like, what was the as was the catalyst for action? What kind of made you uh, want to get this off the ground? So for me, um, it's quite a, a long story, but I suppose that's the point of the podcast. You <laughs> have um, all day. You <laughs> have all day, exactly. It's uh, So the story starts off with me always being a troublemaker, uh, is the way that I describe myself. Um, so since a young age, I cannot accept when people tell me that's the way it's always been. You know, that, that line is a massive pet hate of mine. Um, because it just means people have stopped trying to do better and just accepted the, the rubbish which we're, we're dealing with this day. So throughout secondary school, university, my medical career, if I've seen something which doesn't make sense, I always challenge it and I always try to fix it. And this started in, the story starts in cardiology in Leeds General Infirmary, uh, where I was doing my GP training. And we had a very poor way of communicating between the hospital and the patients. This is called a, a discharge summary, which essentially is a document which summarizes why a patient came to hospital, what we did for them, what we found out, and what we're sending them home with, and some advice for the GP saying, please, could you you know, take their stitches out in a week, or could you uh, check their blood tests in a couple of weeks? Hmm. So this document is very important because it forms the basis of why the patient was in hospital. One, for the consultant to refer back to, in future so if they have to see them in a follow-up clinic they know why they came in in the first place two for the gp who's now taking over the care of the patient back in the community and three this is actually an important document to generate uh funding for the department because this is a a great time for a non-clinical coder to sit there and say you know this patient came with so and so disabilities or so and so uh frailties and that's why the department needs to build the NHS more because we looked after such a vulnerable patient for this length of time. So I wanted to create a better system, a kind of standardized document that the junior doctors could follow to make sure we hit all these points. What was happening was junior doctors are, are really overstretched and overworked. You know, sometimes they, they inappropriately write half an essay to describe someone's chest pain, which turned out to be anxiety. And sometimes they're writing, you know, a really basic four-line discharge summary to explain a really complex heart attack which has occurred which is just not acceptable in any way shape or form but they're just trying to get anything down on the piece of paper so i approached my brother-in-law uh, who's mohammed tayeb who's the co-founder of medical chain and i told him look i have this idea i don't really have the technical sense of how to do it but i know what needs to be done you're a tech entrepreneur you're also a businessman." You've done quite well. You've exited a few companies. I hope you could help me with this. 
Uh, and he turned around to me and he said, no. Um, <laughs> he said, I have no time for you. Uh, and there's all these GoDaddy websites and some kind of like pro forma you can use or some kind of thing on the internet. You'll find it and just good luck to you and good luck with that idea. Well, okay, that's very, very kind of you, Mo. Much appreciated. What are friends for, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's only married to my sister, but never mind. Um, so then I looked at the next technical person in our family, which happens to be my wife's sister's husband. So basically the equivalent of a brother-in-law, but on the other side. Um, and he was working for a uh, software company in Oxford. Uh, he's called Barra Mustafa. And I said, Barra, or we call him Barry. Uh, I said, Barry, I've got this idea. Mo said he's too busy for me. Do you think you could give me a hand with this? And he said, sure. He said, maybe on the weekends, maybe in the evenings, I'll teach you to do a little bit of coding. Seems like a simple enough idea. Shouldn't take too long to put together. So we put this website together called DischargeSummary.co.uk. And it proved very popular and very successful. Uh, it launched in Leeds Teaching Hospital, Leeds General Infirmary. It was at the University of Lewisham, Princess Royal, Queen Elizabeth uh, in London. So a few hospitals dotted around the country. Mm. And it is a, it's a completely free website just for, to help or act as an aid for junior doctors trying to complete these discharge summaries. Um, one of the big pharmaceutical companies caught wind of what we had done. Uh, and wanted to offer to buy the website and to have us commission more of these templates. Uh, Barry is not a business person, and certainly at that time, I was not a business person. I was just a, a straightforward doctor, and we didn't know what to do. So we thought, who's the only business person we know? So we go back to Mo, and I told him, Mo, you remember that idea I told you about? Uh, well, this drug company now wants to buy out the idea and have us create more templates. What do you think of that? So he said, okay, very good. Sounds, sounds now like he's it. interested. <laughs> yeah, now he's interested. Now, now he's seen the dollar signs. Now he's yeah. interested. So he told me, okay, so what, what do you and Barry think it's worth? You know, factor in how much time you spend on it, the value it's adding to the apartment, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think? So I said, look, me and Barry, we're not greedy. Uh, and we never launched this product or project to make money. It was purely to help the doctors. Uh, so we're going to ask for 5,000 pounds. Um, so Mo just started laughing at us and said, we're idiots. Um, he was saying, you know, they spend that much money on, on pizzas for medical students in one day. <laughs> like that's not even a, you know, not even a business suggestion. So at that point, I think he took us seriously and he said, is this actually what you guys want to do? Um, and I said, no, what I really wanted to do was, and I explained to him the idea of medical chain. I said, I want to empower patients to have direct access to their medical records. I want them to digitally be the conduit for carrying their information from point A to point B. I want to remove the health barriers that patients face in the system today where they're at the mercy of a particular clinic who monopolizes their records. And I want to open up patient choice. And Mo said, I think we can do that. I think it's a great project and it's ambitious. Let's, let's start. So it was me and Mo, uh, the official co-founders, me as CEO and him as COO. And Barra Mustafa is our CTO, and that was two years ago now. Wow! And and have you are you still kind of essentially working full time as a doctor, or are you kind of uh, are you scaling back on on it? Yeah, I have I have to scale back on the doctor side. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of uh, pressures on me to, uh, for example, do podcasts such as this, or go <laughs> traveling and do talks, uh, represent the company. 
Um, but for me personally, I'll, I'll always be a doctor. I'm very proud of being a doctor. Um, I still have a lot to give to you know, individual patients that I see face to face. And on a personal level, I find it quite therapeutic. Um, you know, seeing patients for me is quite uh, autopilot in a sense. You know, you come with a problem. I know what your problem is. I know how to solve this. and I know how to get you a good solution. It's the managing the company and the day to day of the company that's actually quite stressful and quite taxing. So I look forward to going to clinic and seeing my patients and, and have a, a rest there with them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it definitely sounds like it's a it's your vocation. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I'm very fortunate that I ended up in a job which suited me. So tell me then, let's move on just to talking about blockchain uh, and how that is uh, being utilized in medicine and what you guys are trying to do with it specifically. Yeah, so blockchain is, I mean, it's essentially been around for 10 years if you if you want to um, see its history to do with Bitcoin, you know, the first global cryptocurrency. Um, and essentially, the, the best way to really break it down for people is just to say that blockchain removes the middleman. That's the whole point of the technology. If you think about a, a land registry today, you know, you, Connor, you own some property and I have the money to purchase that property. We need a lawyer on your side to authenticate you own the property. We need a lawyer on my side to authenticate I have the funds to buy that property. Then the lawyers talk to each other and authenticate there's money coming from the bank to cover the mortgage. And then we make that exchange. And there's certain countries, for example, in Switzerland now, where these kind of transactions occur on the blockchain because you no longer need the lawyers, the middlemen to prove these transactions. The information is recorded on a distributed ledger, which has been decentralized, which makes the information immutable and shows a clear audit trail. So digitally, you can prove this person owns the land, this person owns the money, and they swapped. And digitally, it's all been recorded on this ledger, which we can all uh, witness. And that's the whole premise behind, for example, Bitcoin, where I can send you funds uh, internationally and it's all been recorded on the ledger, minimal fee, minimal fuss, as easy as sending an email. And it doesn't take a week to send funds from one country to another or to go through all the kind of transaction fees or handling fees that you have today. So what I really liked about this idea and where we wanted to implement it in the medical world is this notion that you have a trustless, immutable source of information where you don't need the middleman being the doctor in this case to prove the information. So if I have a patient who comes to me with their medical records, which is on the blockchain, then I can say, right, I can see you take morphine three times a day because you've got chronic back pain. You happen to be in my neck of the woods, miles away from your own clinic. I can help source you that morphine and continue that analgesia. What would happen instead if we didn't have such a, a resource I tell them, I'm sorry, that's a drug of abuse. I can't prove where you've got this information from. We're going to have to speak to your original doctor if this is within working hours and have them fax us the information to confirm whether you are actually on this medication or not. And whilst you're sat there in pain waiting for me to sort this out, you might just want to go to A&E and get, get that, your medication from there because I'm not happy to give it to you. Mm. Yeah, and, and it does work. To, I suppose the flip side there, you know, say there, if there was a person who was trying to get morphine uh, for because they they had an addiction problem, if everything was on the blockchain, they couldn't just forge uh, a script or whatever because on the blockchain everything is encrypted. It is it is as close to being set in stone as is possible. So um, 
So that kind of scenario wouldn't arise either. Exactly. And and this is the, you know, for example, if you really were that um, determined to keep sourcing uh, this kind of medication or, or this kind of uh, malingering behavior, then you just turn up from department to department requesting this. Whereas, you know, and hopefully the, the future that we're aiming towards, this stuff would have been recorded on your ledger going forward look you just received this recently and that, that's actually what happens in a gp practice so i've had many patients that sit in front of me and will say oh you know i'd like codeine please and i can look on the system because when i have access to the information it's very clear they were only issued you know a box of medication a week ago which should have easily lasted them a month so either they've lost it either they're trying to seek further medication or, or either they've used it inappropriately, which, you know, is also a reasonable outcome. And, and I have to ask them, look, that medication was meant to last you a month. Are you in that much pain that you finished it within a week? And then that opens up another conversation. Hmm. So it's not just about, you know, punishing patients or holding patients to account. But it's this idea of having a better insight into what the patient is going through uh, and removing this kind of dependence that the patient has on the doctor to, you know, go go sort their problem out that any doctor could sort their problem out as long as that doctor had the same access to that level of information anybody could help them with their problem yeah like i think you you've described really well the the solution we can or sorry the the problem and the solution you know we can all picture circumstances in our lives where we have dealt with uh, uh doctors uh, either in hospitals or in a gp's clinic and 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 we all know people or maybe we have had frustrations ourselves um, where this type of solution would would just make everything a whole lot easier. Um, so, like, what is your business model? You know, if the problem and the solution are so clear, um, how do you guys, who do you guys sell to and uh, how, how do you think about, I suppose, the business part of it? Yeah, so there's multiple business models, to be honest with you, um, and we're still trying to determine which is the best route to go down. So I can tell you the, the original business uh, model route is this notion of being a software provider between doctors and patients. So in, in the UK, for example, we have the National Health Service, which is for free. So we would probably charge a license to an NHS service for using our software. For the patient, it'd be completely for free. The idea is that should the patient not want to use an NHS service or would like to seek medical advice from another uh, health provider, then they're able to choose a private service. They're able to share exactly the same kind of records that they have with the NHS doctor with the private provider, which is not what you have today. The private provider starts with a completely blank piece of paper and says, tell me what your problems are and try working backwards from there. And the idea is that whatever the fee that would occur between the patient and that private provider, we would take a small cut of that. So from the NHS service, it's a license agreement. And from a private provider, if we uh, were the service that the patient used in order to get to them and share their medical records with them, then we would take a fee there as well. Um, in our first product, so Medical Chain is the name of the company, but the product is called myclinic.com. We also have a telemedicine element there as well. So if you talk to a, a doctor via a video call and that doctor is a complete stranger and you're a complete stranger as a patient to that doctor as well. You can share your records live with that doctor. They have a much better understanding of who you are during the call and can help you and treat you that way. And again, if we've introduced you uh, to that consultation, then we would take a percentage cut of that. Um, the spin-off of this as well, the idea isn't just patients paying for medical services. 
we want patients to financially benefit from having access to their medical records. You know, at the moment, patients are, or patients' data, I should say, is really poorly treated. Um, you've got Google and Amazon and all these huge companies which are just mining data, valuable, valuable data, which is the patient's data, which they, they are not benefiting from at all. Uh, they're being completely bypassed as this information is sucked out of clinics and out of hospitals. And I think it's important to empower patients to be the holders of that information so that when you have the drug companies, the pharmaceutical companies or the insurers of the future wanting to have access to that data, that's absolutely fine. Just go directly to the patient. The patient can prove the authenticity of the information that they've got, which is just as good quality as going to the clinical hospital and is in exactly the same format and to the same caliber. You know, nothing has been lost or deleted in that in that transaction. So that you cut out the middleman, which are the clinics and hospitals, which are financially benefiting from this access to data, and the patient financially benefits directly from giving time-limited access to pharmaceutical companies, researchers, or health insurers, for example. Also, oh, it's time-limited. So uh, the, how long would they give access for? It, it, it's completely up to them. So from our perspective, what I see our role as is we, we just broker that conversation so we would contact the patient and say look you're a 40 year old asian man with diabetes you said you would like to be contacted by so-and-so companies uh they are offering so-and-so for so-and-so much time access to your records this is what we would recommend this is the market value for, for someone's records of of your uh, history and for the amount of time that they need to use it the reason it's time limited is because there are many times when patients' records have been tapped into and secretly have been continued to be uh, monitored without the patients knowing. Mm. And this isn't just in the kind of business world. This is even in clinics. So, for example, if you if you talk about Sir Alex Ferguson or you talk about um, Hammond, the presenter from uh, Top Gear, um, you know, these are people that famous people that were admitted into hospital and hospital staff spied on their medical records looked at their x-rays of broken bones looked at their scans of their brain could pull oh, up where yeah. their home ad- yeah of course of course looked up what, where their home address is what their, what their mobile number is like n- none of this was done maliciously you know no one it was curiosity just curiosity yeah it's just yeah. nosy at the end of the day yeah um and, and i'm sure when somebody's that vulnerable and that unwell that they've had to essentially surrender themselves to somebody to, to care for them that's the last thing they want to know is that their privacy is being abused by some nurse on completely the other side of the hospital who they've never seen before who's just nosing around their information so mm. again you know this is another issue we have in healthcare today if i go to a hospital now when i was a hospital doctor and type in john smith i can see every john smith in the hospital whether they're my patient or not i control through their information um so it's very important to have this kind of link a permission-based link between the uh, party which is trying to access the information and the patient's records themselves. So the patient should be aware of who has access to information and it's their information. If they want to sever that link, you know, obviously with a few caveats in there, but for the majority of us, if we wanted to sever that link, we should be able to sever that link and say, I'm sorry, I don't want you looking at my records. And so that makes absolute sense. Um, so then, so the, so the patients can benefit then, uh, but they can have share some of the upside. And it makes sense that they that there is a time limit because you just don't want to get like a, a once-off payment uh, for access to your data for the rest of your life. You know, there should be, you know, a, you know, essentially you're licensing uh, 
uh, your data to companies who need to use it. But if we move on then to um, how we could maybe apply the uh, product in uh, insurance, like what are your thoughts around that in, in terms of private medical insurance? Yeah, I think there's absolutely huge scope for the private medical insurance. So number one, um, if you want to talk about insurance, if you want to draw comparisons, look at the way we manage car insurance. You know, you are financially incentivized as a driver to be transparent about the way you drive, where you park your vehicle, uh, how you use your vehicle, for example, with a GPS tracker, and you're given a cheaper car insurance for being transparent about that. Um, and I think it should be no different to do with healthcare. You know, the, the health insurer is giving you a generic costing, a generic number, uh, which doesn't actually match you as an individual at all. You're probably paying, you know, o- over the odds for what you should do for your health insurance, number one. Number two, you may be unawares, but you could have been not providing them, unknowingly providing them with incorrect information. Because at the end of the day, you're not a medical professional and you've just completed a form that they've asked you to complete on, on, on their behalf. And when it actually comes to making a claim, they will trawl as hard as they can through every mm-hmm. uh, data point you've ever interacted with a healthcare system and say, oh, you didn't mention that headache you had four years ago. And yeah. as a patient, you would have totally forgotten about that. And then, you know, your, your claim is completely null and void. So I think for a health insurer perspective, it would be a very powerful tool to have the patients grant access to them so they can have an individualized uh, quote made for their specific healthcare problem so that they are tra- completely transparent with the healthcare uh, health insurer so that they can, when it comes to making a claim, it could just be as a smart contract, which occurs on the blockchain as well. I've claimed for X. X has been proven by so-and-so document done to pay for the funds. Mm. Um and furthermore, the idea that because your records are able to be sent across or, or you can give permission for other people to access it, you might have an agreement with that health insurer. So if you look at, for example, Vitality, um, you know they hand out Apple smartwatches to their customers or discounts on gym memberships because they're trying to reduce the risk of you actually ever needing to claim that insurance. And if you could, through your health records, prove to your insurer, I have brought my weight down, I have brought my cholesterol down, I am actually fitter and healthier now. Mm. Can you improve my premium? I think that'd be a very, very valuable uh, relationship to establish between the two. And how would you see that working in practice? Um, would you see it maybe as something like, say, you mentioned Vitality, and uh, they obviously must have done some sort of deal with, with Apple or whatever smartwatch they use. Would you see it kind of being done the same way for you, you working with a health insurance provider to provide your product as some sort of benefit uh, or ancillary benefit to the insurance or what would your vision for that be? Yeah, I, I think it would have to be essentially the, the patients which have to agree to this and mm. to, um, you know, realize why they're coming on board with such an idea. You know, at, at the end of the day, your information or your data is becoming more and more valuable going forward. And it's more a, a representation of your identity as well. And you have to demonstrate to people the added benefits of being transparent with somebody like a health insurer. We would happily form or forge those relationships between the health insurer and and patients or specific clinics um, and trying to show how that access can be secure and accurate using blockchain technology, but 
I think you have to have patient buy-in. And the only way you're going to have patient buy-in is, is money talks. If there's a huge difference between the premium you're offered for not being transparent versus the premium you're offered for being transparent, I think you'd find a lot more people would engage. Absolutely. Uh, 100%. Um, so we're kind of a bit moving on uh, slightly. Um, I read on your LinkedIn page that you volunteered for Mercy Worldwide um, as, a, as a doctor many years ago. But what caught my eye is what you wrote about it. Uh, you said that it had a pr- profound effect on your life. And we discussed before, uh, which we didn't go into detail, it actually has had a profound effect on your business now as well. So I was wondering, maybe can you take me back, can you tell me that story, what had a profound effect on you and how is that, uh, how is that coming up now? Yeah, so this, um, this was unfortunately when I was more free um, to donate my time. I don't think charity is just given in terms of giving away money. I think charity is also done with your, with your time. Uh, to help others and there was a period of time a few years ago where I was very moved by the crisis which was happening in Syria and the you know wave of refugees you had just coming by boats um, every day landing on the shores of Europe dying in the process as well and there just seemed to be little help for these vulnerable people you know even they were being completely um, you know misrepresented in the media as economical migrants uh, and I just think it's mad, you know, unless you've been there and you've seen how these guys come across, you know, I, I went there with the mindset of going as a doctor and really there was, there was no role for a doctor to play in that environment. It was just a humanitarian crisis and you needed to roll up your sleeves and get involved. And I, I had a mini bus, which I was driving up and down the shore of an island in Greece called Lesvos. Um, and these, you know, poor individuals are coming on a rubber dinghy. That should be holding 20 people. They were coming 100 people in this rubber dinghy. Um, and they're coming soon, from Syria across the ocean. They're, the they're, they're current, coming from Turkey. So they've made their way all the way to Turkey. Uh, and then from Turkey, they're taking these rubber dinghies across to Greece uh, yeah. with the promise that once you reach the other side, you know, it's, it's heaven on this side. And unfortunately, you know, these people were so... Um, unfortunate that when they landed they honestly thought they'd landed in germany you know they were they were told by these smugglers that you know as long as you get to the other side you're in germany and i i'm iraqi by background and i speak arabic and i used to have to you know break the bad news to them you're not in germany you're miles away from germany uh, and the beginning of the hard journey just starts now even though you, you know you just risked your life crossing the waters and how many days arrive, would they be on the water for oh i mean they'd make it across in in four or five hours Oh. Um, but they do it. They do it in the middle of the night. Yeah. Uh, they arrive at two in the morning in the pitch black. Um, some of them wouldn't make it, but the ones that did did make it, you wanted to just get them out of the rubber dinghy. Everyone was absolutely soaked to the bone uh, with with wet water, and it was freezing. I was there around um, December time, and you want to just get the kind of women and children onto the minibus uh, and try to ferry them to the refugee camp essentially for processing and moving along as well. Um, and things which are really upsetting is one, we're trying to help these individuals. The smugglers that had sent them from Turkey were also on the Greek side and they were coming, they were uh, tearing up the rubber dinghies and taking the engines attached to the rubber dinghies to send them back to Turkey again. And it, you know, it's frantic, it's in the water, it's in the dark. And this person's going around with a, with a machete trying to uh, you know, 
take the, the air out of this rubber dinghy and just take the engine. And we used to get in so many fights with each other. Um, where I tell them, look, the, the engine is yours. Nobody wants the engine. You know, I'm, I'm driving up and down this van just for the people. Nobody wants your, your engine. Um, and, you know, it became a bit, a bit of a, a game of cat and mouse because they started following my minibus because we were getting reports of where the refugees were going to land. And it was us following them and them following us, trying to figure out where are the refugees going to land. And we're going for the people and they're going for the, for the machinery. Um, and then you'd see these poor individuals and then your kind of medical uh, hat would come on. And you'd think, right, you know, what are their medical problems? How can I help them? You know, what do you need? And, and it's just a mess. You know, they, they've not come with any information. They've not come with any medication. Some of them are really poorly. You know, some people have got conditions such as epilepsy, where if they don't get their medications on time, they're about to have a seizure, about to have a fit. And even though I can speak Arabic, I'm completely lost as to how I could help this individual or what I meant to provide them. Mm. Um, so it's something that's always been in the back of my mind. And when we've thankfully had success with, with Medical Chain and, and, and the company that I've formed, I realized this is something which could be really useful to, to refugees or really useful to people that are moved along from place to place. Um, and if they were able to carry their information, because they all had smart devices of one way, one form or another, and it'd be really useful to, to empower them to have access to their information as they're traveling from country to country. Yeah. You'd have lots of children which were unnecessarily being vaccinated multiple times with the same vaccine uh, because nobody knows whether they received it or not from the country they've just come from. Uh, and it'd be a really great way to just have, look, I've got it here on my mobile device. The child received this kind of vaccine yesterday in Greece. You don't need to give it again to them in Macedonia or in Italy or wherever they've traveled through. So going back to what we spoke about earlier in the podcast in terms of the business model, um, one of the things that we're thinking of really pursuing is this idea of, despite it costing us a great amount of money to build uh, our product, myclinic.com, uh, I'm of the strong opinion of open sourcing this information. Wow. I, want to, I want to put it available on GitHub, and I want people to be able to benefit to download what we've built so far implement it in a kind of clinic uh we're going with this notion that's a digital outpatient solution out of the box so if you're a medicine sans frontier or any other kind of unicef or oxfam and you have these kind of campsites you can just start using this kind of electronic health recording system to issue patients with their medical records which will appear live on their phone and they just carry that information with them as a health passport as they move from nation to nation and do all of the uh refugees do they all have smartphones is that a is that a good way of delivering it yeah i mean you know it's it's amazing how with the kind of technology we have today there are complete leaps in uh pain points in technology so for example you know in in the uk or great britain uh you know we had the landline and then we moved onto the mobile phone in these kind of nations there is no landline there is no infrastructure you know they moved straight to the mobile phone and same thing with the idea of kind of like social media, you know, all the kind of reports and, and footage you see coming from these kind of war-torn countries is all being captured on smart devices. You know, maybe not the most fancy brand new iPhone latest one, but certainly, you know, any, anything from an old Samsung to an old iPhone, it still does the job um, yeah. and it's still able to be, to be used in that sense. Yeah, because I often wonder about blockchain being used for 
passports uh, and kind of visas anyway, because wouldn't that I kind of feel that that might avoid the possibility of anyone ever becoming stateless or at least being able to track where people go over a period of time just to make sure that everyone is safe and in one place or or some other kind of application like that. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, just utilizing um, technology which is out there already. So, for example, the way we used to communicate with some of the refugees is we'd find out one of them uh, has managed to get their WhatsApp number across to somebody who'd arrived just before them. Um, and they'd put on their live location. So you'd see their live location as they're coming across in the water wow. and try to m- marry that up with on, on the beach side of where they're probably going to land. You know, that's that's why we were chasing the um the uh oh, and they were chasing you <laughs> and they were chasing us because you could tell one of us is kind of moving with this gps as the waves are carrying their boat from one side to the other you're trying to follow where they're going to land and then you're just waiting for them to show you the torch of their phone or a few of them uh, and try to get to them as quick as you can of course and how many people will come over each day oh thousands oh wow thousands, uh, and i'd say when you're when you're in the thick of it it's i'd say it's quite staggering to be around that many it's it's staggering to be around that many people at any time but when that's happening you know in that situation i can imagine it's just overwhelming no it was it was it was very scary um it was a really scary environment uh scary because for example as i say there, there were vulnerable people coming across and you you just don't know what people's intentions were i mean some people came to help some people came to take advantage of a uh, lawless situation with young women coming across and and you know nobody policing this um some people were economic migrants you know you could tell as i say again you know speaking arabic we've all got our little bit of dialect so you can hear the the irish accent the brummy accent the liverpudlian mm. it's the same thing with arabic you can tell this person is syrian or you can tell this person has come from north africa for example um and there were many occasions in the refugee camp where they would require a doctor's assistance. And, and I felt so sorry for the, the Greek police. You know, they really were trying their best, but they were completely under-resourced. Nobody's helping them deal with this humanitarian crisis. And it's just become their, their problem, which is literally landed on their doorstep, on their beaches. Um, and I would try to get into the camp to help them. But when the crowd of young men could see me moving towards the back door, rather than waiting in the queue to be processed like they all should be, they would all start running around trying to get in through the door with me. Um, and I have, you know, hundreds of people running towards me and I have to turn around and tell them to sit down on the floor and tell them, look, the policeman is not going to let me into the camp to help somebody because all of you are going to rush through. And you have to, you know, tell them to get back, push back. And then hopefully once they've settled down, I'd, I'd be let in. Um, but, you know, sometimes it could take about 20 minutes, half an hour to convince them that this isn't a joke. This isn't a game. There's somebody who's really unwell in there. And they won't open the door for me because all of you look like you're about to rush in. Mm. What age were you at the time? Um, I want to say 28, 29. Something oh, like okay. That. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's not like you're 21 years old. You know, you're still. Able oh, to no. Yourself no, no. No, not at all. And again, you know, I, I don't want you to get the wrong impression, Connor, or, or maybe your listeners to get the wrong impression. Like, my contribution was absolutely minuscule. You know, went out for like a, a week, a week and a bit, tops. In between uh, my my clinics, I, I requested annual leave to go and do my bit. But when you landed there, you know the people, the sacrifice that people have made, especially Scandinavian people. If I can do a shout out for them, you know these are people that I would I'd be talking to and saying, "All right, how long have you been here for?" 
And some people tell you six months, one year, they've completely left their job. You know, and for me, I have a, uh, you know, a, a link or a connection with these people and, and can, I feel empathized with them on a deeper level of how they're suffering, especially what Iraq had gone through and now Syria was going through it. Mm. And for these Scandinavian people, you know, there's no link other than the humanitarian link. And they were really sacrificing all to, to be there and help people. So, you know, there yeah. really were some, some proper heroes out there. Absolutely. And isn't it amazing that um, that relatively short period of time has had, a, has had such a, an impact on the rest of your life and now on your business? Um, I think you're doing great work. Thanks very much, Abdullah. Um, what, what is next, for, other than the humanitarian aspect, what's next for Medical Chain? Yeah, so, so for Medical Chain, um, I'd like to think we're going from strength to strength. Um, we are uh, thankfully on something called the, the framework or the DPS framework in the UK, which is an approved online solution provider. Um, so essentially trying to get our uh, software out there and get a few more uh, sites picking it up. Uh, I myself, I'm part of the NHS Clinical Entrepreneur Program and the Royal College of GPs Innovator Mentorship Program, which is, um, uh, they were tough programs to get into to be selected. And as a result, we're awarded with mentors and a pilot site. Um, so thankfully, we're being championed. And hopefully, what I'd like to eventually happen, uh, push forward and, and have, our, have our technology out there as quick as possible so people can start benefiting from it and try to expand our network. Absolutely. And, and if there's anyone, uh, any insure tech startups listening um, who are looking to do some innovative stuff in uh, blockchain, specifically in uh, medical insurance, maybe, uh, are you open to partnerships? Yeah, of course. So, so we've spent a long time uh, building uh, our application, myclink.com. And I think, you know, another reason behind making this open source is I think we can develop a solution much quicker this way. If we turn to the open source community, if we turn to people that will uh, produce lines of code, push it to the community so we can all benefit from it. And certainly if, if anybody is ready to upscale that in the kind of insurance field or, or to do a, a small test case, you know, we'd welcome the opportunity to work with someone. Fantastic. So where can people find out more about you and more about Medical Chain? Yeah, so they can always um, check me by my email, which is Abdullah, uh, A-B-D-U-L-L-A-H, at medicalchain.com. They'll find me on LinkedIn quite easily. uh, And I'm happy to speak to anybody uh, about their ideas or about any kind of collaboration in the future. Brilliant. So, And your website again is myclinic.com and medicalchain.com. That's exactly it. That's exactly correct. Brilliant. Thank you, Abdullah. Best of luck. Anytime. Thanks, Connor. Take care. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye.